0: Let's pray and then we'll get started and um, get going here on our lesson this morning. Our Lord, thank you so much for your word and that you have preserved your word through the ages and your word endures forever. It stands the test of time. Lord, we're so grateful that you have included every single book into the canon of scripture. And that each book plays a critical role in the inspired words of God throughout history. And Lord God, we are so grateful to dig, to have the opportunity to dig deep into these things. Thank you so much for saving us, for rescuing us from our sin, for redeeming us from our corruption, from our wickedness. Thank you so much for calling us as sons and daughters of the King. And Lord God, we are so looking forward to the future kingdom of that that is going to be marked by righteousness. And Lord, we long for that more and more each day as we watch our world degrade and decline. Lord, help us to be faithful in all of our endeavors, in all of our ministry, in all of our interactions. May you be magnified and proclaimed because of our life, and our, our testimony for Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to learn from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, sorry the microphone its having a little bit of issue. Oh, now we've got... That was very timely. Wow. <laughs> That was great. Good, just to wake you up this morning, in case you're kind of dusting off the cobwebs from getting an extra hour of sleep. And uh, what we're going to be talking about today is bibliology number two, preservation of scripture, that's where we'll primarily camp today. We'll also talk about canonicity and synoptic gospels. I have just, because this is such an important and foundational thing, I have just relegated to the fact that this is going to be a two-parter, uh, and I'm just that's going to have to be the case. Uh, preservation is what we're going to primarily talk about today. Canonicity and synoptic gospels we'll primarily focus on next time. Uh, and I trust, it's been a couple weeks since I've been here, I was up in Tehachapi teaching and uh, preaching there for their Sunday service, uh, which we had a wonderful time together. That was great. I was actually able to use a lot of the content that we studied in the book of Job here and use that to be able to minister up there. And then, of course, um, David took my place and did a phenomenal job. Uh, talking through Theology Proper 1, the knowability and the existence of God, and I trust that you gained a lot from that. I really appreciate his ministry in my stead. And then, of course, last week we had uh, the privilege of the Influencers Conference and having the Q&A, and I trust that many of you were able to be there for that. That was a very informative Q&A. If you were not already... uh, Well, of course, the conference itself really explained a lot of things, but there were a lot of details, too, that... Uh, Steve was able to explain even further, and I think that was really helpful for us. It was instructive. So now we're back, and we're able to walk through Bibliology number two, Preservation of Scripture. And I want to start by giving you uh, the Westminster Confession here and what it says in regards to the preservation of Scripture. This is helpful for us. This is what we would hold to and understand with how the Scriptures were preserved. You can see up there on the screen. The Old Testament, as the Westminster Confession says, the Old Testament in Hebrew, so this would be referring to the Hebrew original manuscripts that were written, and I would put a little caveat there that it should actually also say in Hebrew and the portions of Aramaic. Because there are portions that were originally written in Aramaic. There are not many, but there are about 10 chapters of the Bible that are written in Aramaic. And then uh, a couple of verses and a couple of words that uh, refer to Aramaic as well. But the Old Testament in Hebrew and in Aramaic, and then the New Testament in Greek, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in ages are therefore authentical. Okay, that is a word I have not heard very much before. Uh, I think we would just use the word authentic, yes? But uh, I did look that up just to be sure that that's not a typo. It is authentical. But the idea is that they are true and exactly what God intended for them to be. And so then it concludes, so in all controversies of religion, the church is to finally appeal to them, not to a creed. This is that's, that's the irony of this, right? This is a confession, almost like a creed, right? We don't appeal, ultimately, to the Westminster Confession. We appeal to the Bible, and the Westminster Confession is telling us to do that. That's important. That's a uh, important thing to start out with. Now, in terms of the providential nature of preservation, there are... As we get into this, there are a couple questions I think that we want to address as we're walking through this, just kind of give you a head start, what we're going to be looking at. One is, we want to answer the question as to what detail has God preserved the original? To what detail has God preserved the original? How far does that go? When I mean the original, the original manuscripts of scripture. Also... How has God preserved the original manuscripts? Was it Did he do it with just one manuscript? Was it with many manuscripts? How was that preserved? And then, finally, did he preserve the original miraculously, or did he do so providentially? Did he do so miraculously, or did he do so providentially? Now, coming just generally to Scripture, I think we kind of want to want to assume, oh, it was some kind of miraculous thing. But we'll talk a little bit about that and how that, how that worked. So referring to the providential nature of preservation, let me give you some passages here that are, have a little bit become proof texts for the preservation of Scripture that can be taken out of context. These are really good passages, and I'll explain them here in a moment. But uh, Psalm 12 Verse 6, The words of Yahweh are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times over. Or, Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Yahweh, your word is firmly fixed, or it is established, in the heavens. Or, Psalm one nineteen verse one fifty two long have I known your testimonies that they that you have founded them forever, or the one that we 're pretty familiar with, Isaiah chapter forty verse eight the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Yes, I think that there is an implication of preservation in these words, but it 's not an exact Indication that the written scriptures will be preserved. What it's what each of these passages are ensuring us is that the word of God will be preserved, but it doesn't exactly indicate how. How will they be preserved? Uh, and whether it's referring directly to the written communication or whether they're just this is ensuring that God's word always takes place. It always happens, and uh, it, it it's a reality. Matthew chapter 5 verse 18 for truly Jesus says I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not one iota not one dot or one tittle will pass away from the law until all is accomplished all right and so that that passage it makes sense like yeah you would think almost like yeah god's going to preserve his word and i think that there's an implication there but is not directly saying that as much as it's saying that god's word whatever he's promised is written in the past will actually take place, but whether it's actually going to be codified into written text, that's a different discussion. It's a different discussion. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Same kind of thing. Other passages like Luke 16, verse 17, 1 Peter 1, verse 23 through 25, those indicate that. Again, these verses don't promise miraculous preservation of the written text necessarily, but they do promise... That all Scripture is indeed God's Word and that everything that Scripture says will actually happen, okay? Oh, that's that point right there. God providentially has used men to preserve scripture. And I think that that's something that we need to discuss here and make clear. And we can see this as a good example in Jeremiah chapter 36. You may know the story of Jeremiah when he goes before the king and he writes... Essentially, all of the prophecy thus far in his ministry, he delivers it before the princes and the commanders of the king. And then they're like, oh, these are really important words. Like, this is serious. We should take these things seriously. And they're like, okay, Jeremiah, go run, go hide, because the king's probably going to be really mad at you and he's going to want to kill you. So we're going to deliver these words very graciously and carefully to him and have him read this and see if we can convince him. They give it to him and he gets so mad, he takes it and puts it in the fire and burns all of the work that Jeremiah did. Okay? You may remember that story if you've done some reading there in Jeremiah. God didn't then just supernaturally have that book reconstructed from the ashes of that fire, and then it's just somehow preserved. That document, that original document, was lost. But God did have Jeremiah rewrite it again. There is a providential element where God preserved his word through someone's uh, writing, right? Someone is actually doing this on God's behalf. It's still God's very words, but there is a sense where uh, the the writing itself may have originally been lost, but then it could be re copied or rewritten. We see this also in Deuteronomy chapter seventeen and verse eighteen, where it says, "There now it shall come to pass, and this is the rule of the king, as the king sits on his throne uh, over Israel. When he sits on his throne in his kingdom, he shall write for himself a." Copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Okay? So, we can see how, we can see implications here where God is um, not directly talking so much about preserving his word at this point, but it's showing that this is what is the outcome. When men are copying these scrolls, they're copying these books, it is... Preserving the text. Alright, now what I want to talk about here, and this is going to be, this is actually my, I'm a nerd, so this is going to get fun for me, and it may get really boring for you, but I'm going to try to make it as interesting as possible, because I think it's really fun. But how is the Bible preserved today? How is the Bible preserved today? What are we dealing with here? Well, we need to split this up into two parts because of the multiple languages in the Bible. So, we have the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is written in what languages? Hebrew and Aramaic, yes? Okay, very predominantly in Hebrew. Okay, and the Old Testament is based off of, this is interesting your Old Testament that you have in your Bible. I want to make this as real as possible. The Old Testament that you have in your Bible is based in a foundation of basically one Hebrew Aramaic manuscript. okay? One Hebrew Aramaic manuscript. That doesn't mean it's an exact replica of that Hebrew Aramaic manuscript. I want to clarify that. But what we're basing the primary text off of is what's called the Leningrad Codex. And you're like, why is it called Leningrad? Because it's in the city of Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. Uh, Now, this is going to be very interesting. This is where, uh, if you've done some research, you might get initially troubled by, oh, do we really have the word of God? What's going on here? Because when you understand that it's based off of the Leningrad Codex, and you do some research, the Leningrad Codex only goes back to 1008 AD, or AD 1008. That's not very early, is it? That's a thousand years after the time of Christ, but when we're talking about the end of the Old Testament, that's about 1,500 years of time, isn't it? That's a long time afterwards. You're like, okay, so why are we basing our text off of that? Okay, Now, I'm not answering that question necessarily right away here, but we will answer that. But let me just kind of give you a quick diagram of how we're dealing with this. Right now, your Bible sitting there at the bottom is informed primarily in the Old Testament by one manuscript. Okay, so I want you to see that diagram that says clear. That's what we're basically talking about here. Now, what's interesting, and this is what's, this is what's great and it encourages our faith so much, as we drill into this more, it just becomes more and more clear how faithful our translation is and how informed it is. Because this manuscript that was written, in, or I should say copied, right? That's a copy. The manuscript is literally a copy. This guy was probably, who's copying this, looking at manuscripts that were probably. 200 to 300 years prior to him. That's on average what's happening when you have these copyists copying. This is really helpful information. A lot of times you don't even hear this stuff. Like, oh yeah, like, how does this exactly work? So, in 1000 AD, he's probably looking at manuscripts that were probably back to 700, AD 700, something like that. On average, that's what they're looking at. Is it possible he was looking at a manuscript even further back than that? Yeah, that's true, but it's just hard to know. On average, that's typically what's going on because as manuscripts get older, they fall apart, they get lost, they get burned. There's some kind of pillage or plunder of some nation, that kind of a thing. And the the idea is that you're looking at manuscripts that are probably a little bit more recent, but still two to three hundred years. That's not very um, that, that's still a little ways back, isn't it, for for that person? So you're looking at about two hundred, three hundred years. He's copying, and the. The faithful rendering and the copying of these manuscripts—it is second to none when we look among other texts throughout history of other books, uh, other resources, and this is what's really cool, is that there was a discovery. So back in the day, when we have a lot of church history, we have a lot of copies of the Old Testament, that kind of thing. Uh, When we get to the 1940s, there was this incredible discovery. And many of you may know about this. If you've listen to lectures or um, maybe at your church or maybe it's some kind of uh, Bible class or something, you'll know these terms, like the Qumran caves. The Qumran caves, very important, they're in Israel. And if you go to Israel, I should say when you go to Israel, right? When you go to Israel, you can go visit those caves. And it's an incredible find because they found... Um, The Essenes, which were a a sect of (laughs) Judaism back in Jesus' day, they liked to isolate themselves from everybody else, and so they lived in these areas that were in desolate regions, and they kept and preserved lots and lots of scripture. You can see the providence of God at work. Not a super miraculous thing that defies science or whatever. It's just God providentially was behind the scenes using this sect of Judaism to preserve the text. And these guys weren't always super faithful to the text as we would understand it today. Some of them may have been, but it is amazing to see God's use of people even in, in uh, sects of um, Judaism that were not always as faithful as we would understand it. They were not... Um, necessarily believers in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Okay, and so we have the Qumran scrolls. And they found tons and tons of Hebrew and Greek texts of the Old Testament. And guess what it showed? An amazing amount of consistency. We're talking about copies of scrolls from the Qumran caves that go back to the time of Christ. That's a thousand years prior to the Leningrad Codex that we have, which validated the fact that the Leningrad Codex is actually a really good resource for us to use as our base text. Now you say, well, why don't we just use the Qumran scrolls and that kind of thing? Because the Leningrad Codex is the earliest complete, this is a really important point, it's the earliest complete Hebrew manuscript. It's the earliest complete Old Testament Hebrew manuscript. What we have from the Qumran scrolls is several, hundreds of manuscripts that validate it, but they're not all entirely complete. It's like this book here. There's this scroll here from Esther. There's this scroll here from Chronicles. So we base it off of this very faithful text, the Leningrad Codex, and then What's really interesting is that, again, as I mentioned, your Old Testament is not a replica of that Hebrew Leningrad Codex. It's not. It's not a replica. It's informed by the Qumran scrolls. So there's been a lot of what they call textual criticism, and you need to not see that as a bad thing, because I think textual criticism gets a bad rep, and it Sometimes should because a lot of liberal scholars do a a huge disservice in their textual criticism of the Bible because their whole point is, well, we don't really believe the Bible, and so we're going to poke holes in it, and we're going to show how there's falsification in there and, and that kind of a thing. Okay, But your Bible, your Old Testament... Is a composite of textual criticism, and there's a very good element to textual criticism. Because really what the, the goal of textual criticism is, is to get to the, the original text. Isn't that what we all want, right? We want to get to the original text, yes? So textual criticism is a good thing, yes? Okay, so the Qumran scrolls help inform the text that we have today, and it helps to show the differences between one text and another, and the slight variations or um, and things like that. Okay, there's more on this though here because this is what's fascinating. I, I find this really fascinating. So, yes, you have a question? Yeah. Sorry, probably yeah. a different question. Yeah. No, it's good.
1: Qumran scrolls. Is- same as the Dead Sea Scrolls?
0: Correct, yes, thank you so much, yes. Yeah, I probably should have called them the Dead Sea Scrolls, because that's probably the more common name for them, but Qumran is the location of where they were actually found, but Qumran is right next to the Dead Sea, so you can understand why they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls as well, so good. Now, what's interesting is that the exile of Israel and Judah plays a huge role into this. It's a huge role, and I think it's overlooked. The exile of Israel and Judah benefited the preservation of Scripture. Because going back to 586 BC, okay, that's almost 600 years before the time of Christ, Israel is officially and finally exiled by Babylon. There were waves of exile that came prior to that, even in Judah. But... 586 B.C. was kind of the nail in the coffin for Judah. They're done. The the exile is complete at that point. They're completely um, dismantled, taken into exile. And what it did is, this is incredible, it spreads everybody out. Right? When you get taken into exile, what happens? You move. Yeah? You, get, you move to different places. And Babylon loved to move people to all different kind of places. It's not like they just took them to Babylon. They took most, more of the special people to Babylon, like Daniel and his friends. These were skilled people, young men, that would be trained in the, um, the ways of Babylon. But you've got people spreading out all over the place because Babylon owned a ton of territory. They were conquering everywhere. So what's happening? You're getting Jews that are moving and they have to change languages. Right? They have to change languages. What does that force... What does that, how does that end up affecting Israel? Well, What it does is that those who were scribes and scholars, they had to learn different languages and so they began to copy the scrolls, into other languages. Yeah? Like uh, ancient Greek, probably some Attic Greek there, uh, Syriac, Aramaic, Arabic, Coptic, which is kind of in the Egyptian area, era, or area. In fact, let's look at a little diagram here. <coughs> That's what's basically happening here. You have Hebrew, predominantly, obviously, in Israel. But then you have, now, because of the exile, you have manuscripts that are copied into Aramaic. I mean, a good example uh, of this is that you have these what are they called targums. Uh, there's one famous one called Targum Jonathan. Okay, it's it's literally uh, the, a lot of the Hebrew text written in Aramaic. You have Syriac, the Peshitta, okay, and and that. Work is comprised of literally in the Syriac language. We have obviously what comes a little bit later, which is the Greek Septuagint, when Greece takes a little bit more of a predominant role in the Table of Nations after Babylon and after Medo Persia. And then you have texts that are written in Arabic and then Coptic in the kind of more Egyptian um, languages and so forth. So you have. The Bible spreading out, which is incredible. Now, of course, what's happening here? You're you're changing languages, so there's a complexity there. It makes it more difficult to render the exact text. It's also not the original text, right? Because it's like Hebrew. But what is it doing? It's informing. It's helping us to understand and get back to the original text. That's what it's helping us to do. Which is amazing. And what my claim here to you is that Every word of the Old Testament was preserved because of these multiple translations of the Old Testament into other languages. That's my claim. Now, I don't have a chapter and verse that goes to that. But I would argue that's exactly what's going on. What I'm not saying is that the Hebrew Leningrad Codex (laughs) <laughs> that we have, right? The, the 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 earliest complete Hebrew Bible, or the yeah Hebrew Old Testament, that that is perfect and pristine, and that can, contains every exact word and detail of the original text. I don't think that that's true. That can't be true, actually. But. We have so many witnesses in multiple languages that inform the text from multiple angles that you can reconstruct the original text, and that's exactly how your Old Testament is reconstructed. That's exactly what's going on. Okay, and some very, very smart, very, very, very smart men have dedicated their entire lives to ensuring that that is so. Okay. So that's, that's an important thing. God used the exile. This is what I think is incredible. He used the exile. This is what God's in the business of doing anyways, right? Turning evil for good. This is what he's done. He's used the exile to preserve his word in multiple languages so that upon comprehensive, comprehensive research, the original text can be determined. That's what textual criticism does. That's what... This is, this is what so encourages our faith, honestly, that the Bible is truly God's Word. And what, what you have in your hands can be trusted, even down to every word. Now, are there times where there is a little bit of an iffy, like, is it this word or is it this word? Yeah, of course there are, right? But it's somewhere. It's either one or the other, right? And that's part of the textual criticism element, okay? God's Word is preserved. So, again, just to reiterate, God used the exile to preserve his word in multiple languages so that upon comprehensive research, the original text can be determined. Okay? He used the exile for that purpose. Okay, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. Now, let's get a little bit into the New Testament, which I think where is more where people tend to focus. Um, they don't really often, the, the Old Testament is kind of a, uh, an afterthought when we actually consider the New Testament, because there's so much detail in the New Testament. This is a fun one. And I'll give you a little bit of an example. This is great. I've always wanted to teach on this. I've never really had an opportunity. So, uh, sorry, you get to be the guinea pigs for me, uh, which is fun. So if I get, um, you know, all of a sudden, like, shaky or whatever, and I'm getting all excited, there's a reason why. Okay. How is the Bible preserved today for the Greek New Testament? Now, the the New Testament was written entirely in Greek. Okay, the entire text is written in Greek. There's no um there's no debate on that. Now, there are Hebrew words and Aramaic words transliterated into Greek text, but that's different than actually like actually like Hebrew letters right written on the page aramaic letters it 's the Greek alphabet from beginning to end that 's exactly how the New Testament is constructed and here 's what 's interesting it 's different a little bit approached differently with the New Testament at the same at the end of the day it approach, it actually reaches the, the same conclusion, but it 's approaching it from two different angles and that 's totally fine it 's just the way that the the, um, the text was preserved with the Greek text as opposed to the Hebrew text, and it 's totally fine, but it reaches the same conclusion at the end. It's based off of an analysis of thousands, a conglomeration of thousands of Greek manuscripts. I mean, we're looking at approximately about 5,600 Greek manuscripts. That's a lot. That's a lot. And uh, you've probably heard the stats. Like, okay, the second most uh, text that we have of that kind of magnitude is Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And I think it's like... You know, in the hundreds, maybe. Maybe it's at a thousand. I can't remember. Something like that. So this this just makes everything dwarf in comparison into the amount of testimony that we have on the text. And the faithfulness between the copies is pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking. So there is not a work on the planet that even comes close to the preservation of a text like the New Testament or like the Old Testament. Okay? And we have as a part of these 5,600 manuscripts of Greek texts. We have full Greek texts from beginning to end, Matthew to Revelation. We have those. Those are a little bit later. But then we also have random pages. We have the Bible written into commentaries, old commentaries back in the day. Uh, We have... The text written into song and lyrical um, catechisms and, and, and creeds and so forth. Uh, we have parchments. These would be those um, papyrus manuscripts. Those didn't survive very well because they were easily burned. Right, It was it was harder for, for them to survive. Uh, when you got more into the leather skin copies, as, as uh, the Bible got copied more and more and, and richer people <laughs> were able to preserve it and copy it, those survived a little bit better. Sometimes they even survived in fire. You can actually see one um, down at the Master's University in there. They have a little um, glass area behind that glass. They have a scroll that survived um, the, uh, the Jewish persecution there in World War II. Uh, and, uh, but it, it goes back to like 1500, maybe, maybe it's 1600, 80, uh, 1600, or something like that. So anyways, all that to say... The papyrus were, uh, they were easily, uh, they, they would easily dissolve and they would easily get burned. But we do have random pages that go back to even the 200s. I mean, that's really, really early, especially for the New Testament. All right, and just to kind of give you that diagram again to show you from the New Testament perspective. It's kind of more like this, where you've got like all of these manuscripts, and we're not really looking at one base text from where to start. We don't start with one base text. We're just kind of taking like a a cherry pick of a bunch of different manuscripts, and we're piecing together a conglomeration into your New Testament. That's basically how the New Testament is put together. Now, do you need to know that? No. Is is it going to really, like... uh, you know, help you um, in your ministry to know that maybe there might be ways in which it can. But I think it's just helpful and informative to really help your increase your faith and, and trust in the reliability of Scripture. This is kind of the way it is, and then you can help answer questions that people have questions about. How does the Old Testament? Where do we get our Old Testament from? Where do we get our New Testament from? So the New Testament is very, very much a conglomeration of piecing together. So what's uh, what is interesting is that there is no, and that this might seem a little bit shocking at first, so um, just hear me out on this. There is no one Greek text that we have today that looks precisely like your New Testament. There is no one Greek text that we have today that precisely looks like your New Testament. And you're like, oh no! Like, So are we saying that we don't have the Word of God, we've added things in, we've subtracted things? No, the point is, is that, no one Greek copy that we have today probably was the original manuscript either. Does that make sense? Right? Because they copied and there were errors, or there were sometimes times where they would actually add some things in, uh, not to denigrate the Word of God necessarily, but they were trying to explain some things. Um, and so, uh, what you can come away with, though, is that the New Testament is actually probably... Uh, that your New Testament that you have in your hands is probably more accurately showing the original text than any other copy of the New Testament that we have. That's what's encouraging. The New Testament that you have sitting on your lap or on your table is probably more accurate than any other Greek text that we have have discovered and we have found. Okay, that's important. Jerry, are you referring to translation then when you say that? You mean like translation into English, or into like the legacy standard or more English? Or? Yeah, what I'm saying is um, that's a good question. Yeah, um, the Greek the the text which like the legacy standard Bible, the English Standard Bible, the New American Standard, even the King James version; those versions are resting upon a Greek text that's been. Piece together through textual criticism because um, that's probably far more accurate than any other copy of manuscripts. Like a a full on copy, if you go visit a museum and actually read that in Greek, our Bible is going to be more accurately the original than that copy because of copyist errors and things like that and traditions that multiplied those things over time. So, great question. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, that actually kind of leads into this, there are 95. Um, 90, 95%, there are variants in the New Testament, right? There always are when we're dealing with this kind of a thing. Even in the Old Testament, that's true. In the New Testament, 95% of the New Testament variants are very insignificant. Extremely insignificant. There are so many in which it's like the was left out. Okay. And when you actually understand Greek, and you understand that you don't even need a the to communicate the, it's like... Did we really... You know, like, It's not going to change your doctrine in any way. Sometimes it's just word order. It's hilarious. There's so many times where it's like, is it Jesus Christ our Lord, or is it our Lord Jesus Christ? Well... You know, it's not going to really matter one way or the other. Now, do we really want to know the word order ultimately? Because we believe every word is inspired, right? We want to get down. We do. That's why we go after that. And we actually seek to figure out, was it this order or was it this order? But at the end of the day, is the implication going to really affect anything for you? No, it's not. That's like 95% of them. 95%. That's not that big of a deal. The other 5%, they have worked painstakingly to figure those out. And even those 5% aren't really serious doctrinal issues at all they aren't. So there's really no really we could say no serious doctrinal issues hinge on any of the variants whatsoever. And this is my favorite part here. So let me kind of step back here for a moment talk about this. Uh, This is obviously a map of, I'm sorry it's a little bit uh, faded here, but this is a map of obviously the Middle East, a little bit of Africa, a little bit of Europe. Okay, And This is New Testament specifically, so don't confuse this with the Old Testament. This is specifically how the New Testament textual criticism kind of works. We have a text that goes back to the 300s. This is really interesting. Um, There was a guy who visited Egypt, and um, according to how the story goes, there were Egyptians that were, on a cold night, were trying to warm themselves by a fire, and they were just throwing random scraps into the fire to feed the fire. And one of the scraps that they were throwing into the fire was a full copy in Greek. So it's Greek Old Testament, right? Septuagint, translated from the Hebrew and the Aramaic. Greek Old Testament, a full version of the Bible in Greek from beginning Genesis to Revelation. And they began to throw, they were like tearing off pages, right? And throwing Genesis into the fire—that's basically what was happening, right? They had no idea what they—they they didn't even probably even know how to read it. Okay, they're just throwing it in the fire. And this guy found it, and he's like, "Whoa! Can I see what you're throwing in there? Oh, that's an important thing!" And so he found a way to like, according to the story. Now, this—it's only this guy's testimony, so right. But when when analysis was done on that text, this text dates back to the 300s AD. Whoa. That's huge. Don't throw that in the fire. Okay, right? Don't do that. All right? Now you're like, where, where was this happening? It was happening around the Mount Sinai area. Okay? So this is why it's called Sinaiticus. Okay, Sinaiticus. And there's a little symbol next to it, and it's the Hebrew letter. And you're like, why is it in Hebrew? Because it was written in Greek. I don't know. Uh, Anyways, um, it's a symbol, though, and they use it to designate. Basically, they have a symbol for every, this is incredible. They have a symbol for every single copy of the New Testament. There's a symbol for every single copy. Now, uh, they started running out of symbols, so they started using numbers, okay? They're like, well, this is one. This is 2,345, okay? Like, right, that's what they started to do. But this one is called Aleph, right? That's just the Hebrew letter for the first letter of the alphabet, which is where we get alphabet, alpha, beta, that's the Greek Aleph-bet is in Hebrew, right? Aleph, it's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Sinaiticus is the, the formal term. Okay? Sinaiticus did a a huge service for us in informing us of the especially the Greek New Testament. And that was found around 1800s. Okay? So this is 1800s. There's a lot of interest in the Bible and textual criticism back in that day too. Okay? There was also one... Um, found in Alexandria, Egypt in A.D. 400-ish sometime. Mostly, from what I understand, a complete text of the Greek New Testament. This is an important one, Vaticanus. (laughs) Where do you think that one's coming from? Rome, right? Vaticanus, uh, represented by the letter B, just like Alexandrinus is represented by the letter A. And that one dates back to the 300s, as well as Sinaiticus. Okay, this one's a hard one to pronounce. This one is Ephraimi Rescriptus. Okay, Ephraim Rescriptus, letter C. Okay, and you're like, how many of these go? I mean, we're literally going throughout the alphabet. It's just like there's D, there's E, there's F, there's G, right? And anytime it's like a capital letter like this, it means that it was written pretty early. And there's a whole coding on this. It was written pretty early and it was written in probably all caps because in Greek back then they only wrote in all caps. There was no such thing as lower lowercase script. They uh, created a lowercase script for ease of copying later on which is kind of how our Greek Bibles are written today. They're not written in uppercase. They were probably also written where there's no spacing between the words so it takes a little bit of time to decipher through. It was to save on space and uh, and that kind of thing so you don't have to write on so many parchments over and over and over again. Okay, But that's what these are and they're most Mostly pretty early. There's also one that's other very very much noteworthy, which is found in um, modern-day Istanbul, uh, which was previously called Constantinople and um, that is the majority text. Now it's not that's not one text, okay This is a, a lot of different texts, thousands of texts perhaps. thousands of Greek texts. And the interesting thing is that these are copies from about the 800s to 900s. And I really want to emphasize this. This is why I'm taking so much time on this. Is because the King James Version, if you enjoy the King James Version, that's a good thing. Don't, don't throw your King James Version into the trash. Okay? It's a good translation. The King James Version is primarily based in the majority text. It's based in the majority text. uh, Which means it's based in thousands of texts that agree with each other. And the accuracy with which they agree with each other is amazing. And so at first it makes it seem that must be the original text. Because we have hundreds, maybe thousands, that almost agree in every detail. And there's hardly any variant in them. So, yeah, let's base everything off of the majority text. But that's not quite how... Textual Can I use the word evolution? Textual evolution works. That's not how it develops. Because the majority text is all coming from one location. One location. Very important point. Why is that important? Because if they're all based in 800s and 900s, what's happening? If they're all in one location, what's happening? You have uh, scribes that are copying the text from probably one copy that was their what? Base text. Does that make sense? The problem is, is that how do we know that that base text was truly the original manuscript? Especially when these copies are 800 and 900, they're probably looking at copies that are what? 300, 400, maybe? Maybe 500? Does that make sense? Right, They're looking at probably one copy that was their original text that they began to proliferate all of these other copies in modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople. And, of course, this was uh, done primarily in this area because you know maybe the history of Emperor Constantine and how he really changed the whole map of the world when he converted to Christianity, at least on paper, Right? And so then Constantinople becomes the hub of everything almost Christian. Yeah. So then, of course, there's going to be thousands and thousands of copies over the years, and they're just going to be copying and copying and copying. And, of course, during this era, you have the rise of the Catholic Church and, and all of that. It's being codified, systematized, all of that. These are good and faithful texts. I don't want you to look bad upon the majority texts. They're just not as, I would argue, authoritative as what? Earlier texts. And the point is is that they are not cross-checked well because they're all like in one location. They're not cross-checked well by what? Other texts. Okay? So here's here's where if you're like I'm totally lost. I have no idea where you are. I don't, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this. If you can get one thing out of this, I want you to understand how textual criticism works, especially at least with the New Testament. Sinaiticus 300 pretty much a complete copy, especially of the New Testament. And then Vaticanus, 300, mostly a complete copy as well. The key is is that in your New Testament, when those two align and they agree with each other, bam, that's probably what your text is. That's it. You're like, why? Why is it that you rest on those two? One, because who are they probably copying from? Go 300 years back. What's 300 years back from 300? Almost zero, right? The New Testament was written in 50 to 100, right? So they might be looking at the what? The original text. Does that make sense? Okay. Secondly, how far apart are they from each other? Very far apart. Does that make sense? How do you get almost the exact same text in Vaticanus and Sidianicus, and they're both 300, unless what and they're so and they were they were copied they were literally were copied that far apart from each other unless they were what looking at the probably what was the original does that make sense that is how the new testament is built it's built on mostly on the back of Vaticanus and Sinaiticus it's incredible that's how we know the difference between one text and another. Now, do these other texts have a huge play? Yes, they do. Alexandritus comes in and, and really helps a lot. And it's really great when you have when you're saying this text is demonstrated in Sidianicus, Alexandritus, Vaticanus, Ephraim Rescriptus. It's like, yay! So when you see A and B and Olive and C all agree with each other, and then you see the majority text differ, what's gonna happen? They're gonna do what? Probably go with A, B, and C and Olive Because they're earlier. And they're spread out. And they're probably looking at the original. Whereas the majority is later and is borrowing from copies of copies. So that's why there are some issues when people are really get King James only. It's a big problem because they literally have to ignore the way that textual criticism works and how the text came to us. That's why we prefer translations like the Legacy Standard Bible or the New American Standard or the English Standard Version. Pretty much every other Bible, uh, English Bible is based on that. The reason why the King James typically is still revered is just because that's tradition. That's, it's generally a tradition thing. I know that um, there will be guys that will try to argue that differently, but it's, it's really not based in a, a very good argument. That's basically how textual criticism works. Now, I think this might be a good place to stop, because that's a lot of nerdy stuff, okay? Uh, do you have questions on that? Um, we're not necessarily stopping here yet. <laughs> you're, like, you're actually going to stop early. Uh, yeah, Jill. So, if the Vaticanus and the Psymeticus... Yeah. There's yeah. Ultimately only one. Right, right, right. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they may. I should say that one of them probably was looking at the original, but the idea is is that they're looking at what we would almost call immediate copies, if that makes sense, right? Copies of the original that were around that same time, which the likelihood of that copy being inaccurate is very little that makes sense. So thank you for clarifying that. That's a good point. Because obviously they probably both couldn't have been looking at the original unless someone somehow traveled across the Mediterranean Sea and delivered it over there, right? And that's possible because we're talking about still a couple decades that perhaps the difference between one text being copied and another. But at the same time, it's probably it, what they're doing is they're looking at either immediate copies or close to immediate copies or perhaps close to the original. So yeah, that's a good clarification. Good. Yeah, Derek.
1: What about like how they find out that these things are dated? What they're dated? Like, how? What do they use to say? Oh, that's three hundred A.D.
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm a little unfamiliar with the science behind that. There is a, I think there is a way to, um, to do some kind of a dating. It's not like. You know, obviously, like carbon dating with rocks and things like that. There's a little bit of a different method there, but a lot of it is actually based out of the material that it's on. Most of it is based on the material. If it's papyrus, it's almost exclusively 100, 80, 100, maybe 8200. They stopped using papyrus because they realized how flimsy it was, and you know, Christianity became a little bit more systematized, and more people could actually afford more expensive materials as you get that's one of them the other one is the script the script kind of changed and evolved over time not the the words or the meaning of words or anything like that it's just the way that they wrote there was a style and there are actually localities different localities have different styles it's so funny like different handwritings and different you know things like that so they use that and it's a pretty sure way to indicate the general time frame. That's probably also why they don't have an exact date, right? They can't just like, oh, it's down to this day and this year. They don't have that obviously. They're kind of looking at more of a century of time, and that's why I'm putting like 300s, 400s, because that was about that time that they were doing that kind of writing. And then you can just kind of tell the wear of the text too uh, over time. There's a little bit of a, a visual analysis there as well. So, yeah. That's a good question. Good. Other question? Yeah.
1: Mm. I just think it's fascinating that you know, we went to Israel with Dr. Persante. Yeah. So on our way to um, Masada, everybody knows Masada. You know, yeah. past Qumran. Yes. And so they're pretty sure that, you know, they say, hey, you, the Romans are coming. You better think about, you know, what you want to do. Mm. And at that time, they took all the scrolls and hid them into the mountains. Yeah. And then they figured they'd go to Masada or anybody else. When he blows over, they'll come back. Yeah. Of course, we you know in the end of the story, and for 2,000 years, nothing. Right. 1947 months within Israel becoming a nation. That's right. And for the next 10 years, they discover all 11 caves. Yeah. The sense of humor God has. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's as, really... As you look and see what's happening today.
0: Yes. It's and really you timely. You
1: see those in a museum and you're going, you're reading things like, you know, we found 600 portions of the Old Testament. And they came around and said, These are non Christians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That what we have today mm-hmm. is exactly what we have then. There's mm-hmm. a few things like a period or mm-hmm. the context. That's right. And, and you can see though, Yeah. It's, it's just, it just chill. It's chilling. Yeah.
0: And I think that's why so many liberals are so interested in the Bible because it's so faithfully preserved, it's un- it stands out. Le- unlike anything that we have in literature. Uh, that's that's excellent. And I thank you for that context, too, because that really helps to explain some of the, the background there. And, uh, boy, I hope you get a chance to go to Israel someday. I mean, don't go right now, but <laughs> go soon when things calm down. So, yeah. <laughs> Just
2: in the nerdiness, like the paper or what did they... Primarily used, was it leather? Was it mm. what What was that material? Yeah. And just a side note, I had the blessing of seeing the many others have uh, the uh, Museum of the Bible mm. in Washington, which is fabulous. Mm. But interestingly, they had a rabbi there who, tra- who actually hand rewrites the Old Testament. Wow. He had to be trained for, I don't know, 20, 20 30 years. <laughs> and Jewish families. <laughs> Still, purchase yeah. handwritten copies. Yes, and, and so they and they are. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it made me understand how meticulous yep. the rewrite. So, like, it was a confidence builder. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, this is not like okay, sending rewrite. you know, That's right. Just, it yes, it took him it years and years.
0: I'm glad you brought you that up. Authorized to.
2: Yep. to to recopy
0: uh, scripture. I'm glad you brought that up because um, I didn't even go into that, but we need that from the Jewish side more than even the New Testament. Because the New Testament, it's like the texts were written and then they were just immediately just Copy, 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 and dispersed immediately. With the Hebrew Old Testament, it, it was it, it got translated to other languages, but it it wasn't quite the same. And because our base text goes up back about, about a thousand years, we need some of that. Understanding of that careful preservation, the Jews are more more carefully preserved their scriptures than by far any other nation preserves any literature of anything. And the the testimony of the stories of what they would do when they would write. I mean, I don't know. This one sounds a little ridiculous, but there is testimony of the fact that they would like take a bath after writing a letter, and then they would go take another bath and then write another letter. <laughs> it's like I don't know if it was that so much, but there was definitely. Like they would, they would wash their hands before they like thoroughly before they would start copying. Um, there, there was a painstaking. Uh, precision, and v- very slow. It's a very slow meticulous, because they're making sure they get everything. And on top of that, um, if you ever... Oh, wow, we're almost out of time. Um, on top of that, uh, in the Hebrew text, on the side margins, uh, when you have, when you ever pick up a Hebrew Bible, you know, obviously, like my professor used to say, it just looks like smashed ants on a page, if you ever see Hebrew, it just smash, 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 smash. But uh, you, it'll look like nothing to you. You're like, I don't know what this is. It looks like alien-like font. But When you look at the side margins in a Hebrew Bible today, there are these little notes on the side. And some of those notes are what are called kativ kare readings. Kativ kare. Kativ meaning, this is what was written, and kare, this is what we read, or we hear in our ear. Because a lot of these men weren't just copyists, they memorized, some of them, the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. They memorized it. That's how a scribe, a scribe wasn't just known for, he's, he's, good, he's really good with his penmanship. You know? like, it was that he memorized the entire Old Testament. And they had a certain cadence that they would use to memorize it. That's why there are accent marks that they would, and if you've ever heard a rabbi read the Hebrew Old Testament, it is amazing. It's very different than the way that we read. <laughs> like uh, I have Genesis one one memorized, but they read it like this: Bereshit bara Elohim et Right, that is how they read. There's a certain cadence to it. Why? Because that helps you to memorize it really fast. Right. You have the cadence, and that helps you to know where is the emphasis of the syllable. Is it on the wrong syllable, or is the emphasis on the right syllable, right? That's the point. Like, you got to know these things because Hebrew needs that cadence to understand the text, and they would do the kativ kareh when they would be, mem- they'd have it memorized, and they come across something like, that does it. that's not what my memorization has in my head, but they cared for the text so much that they would go ahead and take what was on the copy, that's not what I remember memorizing, but I'm going to write it in the text anyways I'm not going to change it that's exactly what the copy said but I'm going to put a little note off the side this is what I would read just so that they would be faithful down to every letter that's how painstaking it was so hopefully that gives you encouragement in your faith you can trust your Bible from beginning to end every word is inspired and God has preserved every word Okay, we didn't get through the whole thing of preservation, that's okay, because we'll pick it up next time, uh, probably next week. So, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful time around your word. And, Lord, we're so grateful that we can trust your word. And we can take um, great hope in it, knowing that you have ensured that it is preserved. And we're so thankful that you have truly shown forth your glory in the preservation of your word. And we look forward to even talking next week about not only how preservation wraps up and concludes, but also canonicity and why each book of the Bible is essential to the canon. That if we're missing one book, it's not the full preserved intended word of God for the church age. And so, Lord, we're so grateful that you have uh, preserved and brought... All of this before us. And may we trust in you more as a result. Um, Increase our faith, Lord, we pray. And Lord, give us joy as we worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. And looking forward to seeing you in the service there.